Good morning. Please be seated. We have two cases for argument this morning, Butler versus the City of St. Paul and State Farm Fire uh, versus Sheila Oliver. We'll take Butler first. Mr. O'Brien, you've reserved 10 minutes for rebuttal. You may proceed when you're ready. Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Terry O'Brien. I'm here on behalf of the appellant Peter Butler, who is present in the courtroom today. Uh, the matter before the court today is essentially one of statutory construction. Specifically, what are the requirements for a valid signature on a petition seeking to amend a home rule city's charter? Because this is a question primarily of statutory construction, those uh, well-known to this court principles of statutory construction would apply. Uh, most of those are cited in my brief, but I will briefly restate them. Namely, perhaps first and foremost, is that if the language of the statute is plain and unambiguous, there is no further need for interpretation or forced construction by the courts um, to uh, effect a purported spirit of the law. In fact, if it is plain and unambiguous, it is for the court to apply those as writ those words as written to the facts of the case. Specifically, the issue in this matter primarily relates to Minnesota Statute 410.12 of our statutes, specifically on the issue of the contents of a petition. The requirements for a valid signature under that statute also relate to Article 12, Section 5 of our Minnesota Constitution. And if I were to encapsulate both those concepts and requirements into one statement, it would be two things are required. First, you must be a registered voter. And second, you must be a resident of the local government unit. I don't think anyone, in, uh, I don't think the opposing party disagrees with that characterization of the law in this matter. A registered voter, the first element of a valid signature, is anyone, any person listed in the statewide voter registration system. It is as simple as that. The Court of Appeals, in fact, concluded that this term was clear and unambiguous under our statutes, and we agree that that is the case. It is a person. It is also a collection of data about that person, but fundamentally, it is a person. Thus, the second element, the residence of the signatory in the local government unit, that is the primary issue on which this court has granted review. And counsel, what is your argument for why, when the Constitution says that the petition must be signed by voters of the local government unit, how can that be anything other than St. Paul? Or do you agree that local government unit there is, is the city of St. Paul? Well, I agree that in this particular instance, because it, the petition was seeking to amend the St. Paul City Charter, 
it would, they would need to be residents of the city of St. Paul. And why don't they also need to be a registered voter in the city of St. Paul if what we're talking about is the city of St. Paul as the local government unit? Well, I think that's the fundamental uh, confusion at the heart of this case. It's a misinterpretation. In fact, it's what I characterize as a conflation of the term registered voter. One of the things that um, has perhaps been, um, I guess, uh, bothering me in this case is this notion that somehow registration is consistent with or a measure of residency. A review of our statutes regarding registration, and I've cited them in our brief, uh, discount any notion that the registration process establishes residency um, under, under our statutes and under our law. It certainly is a means to assist in the administration of elections, but it is not a residency locator, nor is it a person tracker. Well, counsel, as I understand it, you're interpreting registered voters just to mean someone who's registered. So you can be registered in Minneapolis, but if you're a resident of St. Paul, then you can sign the petition. Is that right? That is correct. Okay, what if you're registered in the state of South Dakota and you move into St. Paul and then you sign the petition? Am I, am I, is this person a registered voter? Well, it would depend on whether or not they're actually in our Minnesota statewide voter registration system. If they can, and I can't speak to exactly how someone moving from South Dakota, I don't know if South Dakota talks to uh, our folks at the uh, Secretary of State, uh, but I suspect that, uh, no, you'd have to at least be registered in our system, the Minnesota statewide okay, voter so registration system. Okay, so at least system. you imply registered voters means registered in the state of Minnesota. I agree with that proposition. Well, counsel, if that's true, and I mean, Justice Lillehog picked up where I was, was headed, which is so you can be registered in Duluth. So now we're not in South Dakota anymore. We're in Duluth. But you can be a registered voter in Duluth and vote to change a St. Paul Charter amendment or, or be a petition petitioner in a St. Paul Charter amendment? The easy answer first is yes, but allow me to qualify that if I might. Uh, the petition in this particular instance requires that you provide your current residence uh, in that petition. So if your current residence is in St. Paul, but your registration shows you to be perhaps outside the city limits of St. Paul, what controls in this instance is what you have self-identified as the signatory as your residence on that petition. So when evaluating these signatures one by one as the, uh, the uh, clerk is required to do, the first test is to go down and, and, and determine whether or not the address or information provided by the signatory is in fact in that local government unit and in this case that would need to be in the city of St. Paul. Is it extant in the city of St. Paul? The statute requires nothing more. The legislature required nothing more than that the individual self-identify their residence. That is, that is consistent with our election laws regarding residency. Counsel, can you tell me what part of the statute you're relying on for that, what, for what you just said, that it's, that it's clear that it's just registered only and that they don't have to be, they don't have to, um, 
Well, you were relying on the statute, language of the statute. Tell me which language you're relying on specifically. Certainly. Uh, it's Minnesota Statute 410.12, Subdivision 2, and I, I can quote that. Uh, I'm referring to the second sentence. A petition must contain each petitioner's signature in ink or indelible pencil and must indicate after the signature, and here's where I emphasize, the place of residence by street and number or other description sufficient to identify the place. Council, um, since we moved from South Dakota to Duluth, uh, let's assume we've got somebody who's registered in Duluth but signs the petition um, listing an address in St. Paul. Um, doesn't your position conflict with the Minnesota Constitution which says voters of the local government unit? It doesn't say residents of the local government unit. It says voters of the local government unit. And if I'm registered in Duluth, am I not a voter of Duluth rather than a voter of St. Paul? Well, the, the Minnesota Constitution, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to actually read again from that specific language, uh, it says voters of the local government unit as determined by law. That's the actual language of uh, Section 5, Article 12. Yeah, but if I'm registered in Duluth, I'm in the SVRS, I've never voted in St. Paul, I moved to St. Paul one day before I signed the petition, how can I be a voter of St. Paul, whether as determined by law? Well, whether you're a voter versus, first, there's a qualification under the petition, and that is that you must be a registered voter. Okay, so... That's, that's the first qualification. So that's the second, actually, part of the analysis when any signature is subjected to review. Can you, as an individual, be, uh, be identified as being in the SVRS? Because what you are establishing at that point in time is whether you have met the qualifications to vote in this state. The bare minimum qualifications, for example, that you're over 18 years of age, that you're not operating under some sort of uh, legal disability, that you're not under guardianship, that you're a United States citizen. That is what voter registration is about. So, Council, your point is that there's nothing in the statute or the Constitution that, um, deter or that requires that you be registered to vote in any particular place. You just simply have to be registered to vote. Is that your position? That is our position, and I think that that is the only... Uh, so, in other words, a person who is a resident of St. Paul but not a registered voter then would not qualify to be on the petition? That would be correct. Somebody who has never been in the voter registration system and nonetheless signs off, they would not be qualified because they would be eliminated by that first element, which is you've got to be a registered voter. And again, I go back to this idea that we need to um, become disenthralled with this idea that registration is somehow some measure of either an accurate uh, recitation of residency or that it provides anything other than this bare minimum administrative assistance with regard to have you met our requirements to be a voter in our state? Because, and I want to emphasize this, simply because you are registered does not mean that you get to vote. And herein lies another degree of confusion that has seemingly been um, uh, at play in consideration of this case. 
registration standing, that's a standing, is different than registration status. Your status determines whether or not you can cast a ballot on a given day. Those whose statuses are inactive or that they are operating under, uh, you know, for example, they've been convicted of a felony, those individuals, their status um, is flagged and they would not otherwise be able to cast a ballot in Minnesota on that day. Their standing, however, is a registered voter. Their presence in the statewide voter registration system is still valid. They exist in the system. And when you look at the statutes related to voter registration, I struggle to find any reasonable uh, construction of those statutes which would countenance the idea that, no, you lose your standing as a registered voter. So your position would be that a felon who cannot vote, if the felon has been in the SVRS, can sign the petition in St. Paul? There is currently, and I know that this sometimes sits awkwardly with all of us, there is nothing that precludes that person from signing the petition. Because that person would be a registered voter even though the person can't vote? Correct. Now. What about, Council, the provisions that require um, the city to verify the petition? You know, there's the... There's a statute about the Secretary of State adopting certain rules, and then there's Rule 8205.1050 that explains the verification process for petitions. Um, doesn't the doesn't the city have some duty for both parts of the of these this two-part requirement to verify both parts, not just that they're a registered voter, but they actually live in St. Paul? Well. And, and here's the position uh, that we take with regard to that. Number one, I, I believe. And that, that specific argument uh, was, was discussed in lower court proceedings. Um, but it, and I'm having to go off of my memory here. I believe that those rules that were promulgated by the Secretary of State, um, that authority was granted by the Minnesota legislature uh, specifically to nominating petitions, referendum petitions. There was no specific grant of authority with regard to charter amendment petitions under 410. So our position is that those rules, while instructive perhaps, they are not binding. In fact, they run headlong into the specific terminology and procedure that's enumerated uh, and discussed in 410.12 because the legislature provided the procedure. And, and I want to highlight that in that particular case, the language is not verify. The language that, the clerk, that, that describes what the clerk's obligation and their duty, it's actually they are required to determine now, maybe I'm splitting hairs, maybe verify and determine are synonymous, but um, our contention is that that specific express and limited authority that was given to the clerk of the, of, uh, who's reviewed the city clerk or any other election official is, is very clear. They are to determine whether the petition has been signed by a sufficient number of voters 
What kind of voters? Well, then we look up toward the top of 410.12 and we know that it is registered voters. And that's how this works. It doesn't say anything about a clerk going in and second guessing a representation of residency. The legislature was very clear. They set forth very minimal standards, which makes sense given what this is. This is a petition. It's an idea that is being promulgated by a citizen and uh, with the idea that maybe other citizens will agree with it and perhaps we ought to take this matter and turn it into law. It's a reflection of our role as citizens as co-equal legislators with our representative legislation. It's the opportunity for us as citizens to get an idea out to the general electorate who, on election day, when they have met all of the requirements that we require regarding casting a ballot and registration, they go into the polling place, they cast their ballot, they are the gatekeepers on whether this idea even turns into law. So, Council, let me test you on that a little bit. Okay. Um, I live in Minneapolis. I've got a home in Minneapolis. I'm registered to vote in Minneapolis. Let's say one day I'm walking down the street and a petition gatherer approaches me, and I sign the petition for a referendum in the city of St. Paul. And I list my address as the Minnesota Judicial Center. And the elections clerk looks at that and says, well, this obviously is either a mistake or a fraud. He doesn't live in the Minnesota Judicial Center. Um, by your analysis, would my uh, petition signature count? Well, I think your, your analysis on, on the fact that you have just listed a public building as your home, um, uh, that probably what would end up happening is that signature would be eliminated. Uh, well, would it be enough to, for my signature with the address Minnesota Judicial Center be enough to survive summary judgment? Well, I would say, you know, in a bright line test, yes. If your subjective intent and your physical presence, which are kind of the watchwords for establishing residency, um, meet, uh, are, are met, if it is your personal... So no matter how obvious the deficiency in the address or how fraudulent it is on its face, it's still enough to survive summary judgment? Well, the beautiful thing about summary judgment is that you get to come in and you get to then test those facts uh, utilizing witnesses. And that really kind of brings me to the second issue that was before the court, and that is whether or not that petition address can serve as any kind of evidentiary value to withstand a summary judgment. And, and it is our contention, you know, at, at present, uh, the SVRS, according to the Court of Appeals, trumps all. If there's any kind of discrepancy between the address uh, on the petition, the SVRS controls for determination and that the petition address has absolutely no probative or evidentiary weight for purposes of withstanding a summary judgment motion. At a minimum, I submit that you have a dispute of fact in that regard and that that ought to be reserved for trial in which case you can bring in witnesses who might be able to testify and provide guidance on whether or not they actually are residents and when they became residents. And we can have that, you know, we can have that mashup um, uh, under the tests of cross-examination and all the other protections afforded by a proper court proceeding. So 
Yeah, this is a bright line. What we're, what we're promoting here and what I submit the legislature provided for is a fairly bright line test. That in being a bright line test, you don't end up with all of these um, uh, difficult kind of conundrums and hypotheticals. It's a two-part analysis. Go Council, down. If, I'm sorry. If, if we were to adopt your rule of law, what is left, your rule of law on the second issue, that because the petition lists an address in St. Paul and the registration shows the voter registered somewhere else, that that's automatically a disputed issue of fact for trial? What happens to, or what is the effect, um, what's left of Section 201.081, which says that the statewide registration system is the official record of registered voters? Well, again, the voter registration system, SVRS, is the official record of registered voters. It's about people. It's not about data in the system. Certainly, the data facilitates identification. So, you know, when, when a signature is presented, you have uh, a, a current, the petition that's being promulgated by the Secretary of State provides for more uh, disclosure of information by a signatory than is actually required under 41012. 41012 simply requires a signature and a place of address. The Secretary of State form that is utilized by most people coming in to learn about petitioning requires a name, a signature, a year of birth, an address. Those are data, data points that assist in the identification. But, and I want to emphasize this, the absence of one of those not, does not necessarily mean that you can't identify the individual to your satisfaction as a registered voter. In fact, they did it 690 times in this case where there was a technical discrepancy, but there was no question in their minds, and by them I mean the Ramsey County election officials, that these were the same people. So to your question, the registered system still exists. It is the list of official registered voters. But that information changes, and the statutes related to, this, to uh, the voter registration system reflect that those changes happen so, on nearly an hourly basis. Yeah, so just to clarify, in this case, the, the Ramsey County itself acknowledged that what was said in the registered voter system was in fact incorrect, and they allowed people with the discrepancy with the registered voter system to be, to be counted in hundreds of cases. In, in 690 instances in that. And, and if you go, if you move and you go to vote on election day and bring your voucher, the person, your neighbor that would vouch and say you live in this person, that is also going to trump the registered voter system. You're going to be allowed to vote in your precinct if someone says this person lives in my house. That's what our same day registration system says, right? That is correct. And that's, you know, and that's one of the ironies of this whole scenario as, uh, um, with regard to comparing the petitioning process, a grassroots preliminary exercise to get an idea out to the general electorate with the casting of the ballot that might move it to law or might elect a particular individual. It is actually harder to get your signature approved and move the petition forward than it is to cast a ballot because we do have same-day registration, 
And, and it is at that point in time when residency of the individual harmonizes with their voter registration record. In fact, I, that's really the only time. On your, if I am understanding your argument here today, um, it's the it's the voters' signature on the petition that trumps all for purposes at least of summary judgment. Am, am I is that correct? I would say it's more than uh, for even summary judgment. It is the petitioner's signature, and more important, the resident's address that they self-identify. Their answer to that petition call, provide your current <laughs> residence. It is that that is the legislature has said ought to be dispositive, particularly when coupled with the express language of 41012s. Uh, recitation of the duties of the clerk, which is simply to determine what determine whether the petition has been signed by a sufficient number of voters. It is not the clerk's job to engage in some sort of second guessing with regard to residency, because residency under our election statutes is based on physical presence and subjective intent. I really want to emphasize one further point, because I know that my time is running very short here. One of, the, one of the bases that both the lower court and the Court of Appeals used in kind of undermining our argument was that, say, notably, there is nothing in uh, section 200 point, uh, I think it's 031, which is the uh, statute related to uh, the principles to be followed when determining residency under our election laws. Those 13 criteria that can be used to determine residency. They said, the lower courts noted, one of the things that isn't mentioned is signing a petition. Well, I want to add, nor are one of those 13 principles your voter registration information. Voter registration is not about residency. It is about passing the initial muster for are you qualified to be a voter in our state? Thank you, Council. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Mr. Edwards. Good morning. May it please the court and council, my name is Tony Edwards. I'm an assistant city attorney with the city of St. Paul, and it is my pleasure to represent the respondents in this matter, the city of St. Paul, Sherry Moore, and Joseph Mansky. You move the microphone a little closer to you, tip it up a little bit. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Hopefully that's better, Your Honor. Now, procedurally, the core issue in this case is something we haven't yet touched on. That is whether the respondents in this case committed an error, omission, or wrongful act by relying on the information in the SVRS, which as counsel states is the official record of registered voters in Minnesota, to validate the petitioner's home rule charter petition, seeking to amend the St. Paul Charter, and by rejecting signatures that couldn't be tied to a current registration address in St. Paul. Now, in effect, you've heard petitioner's argument. He's arguing that when a person provides a St. Paul address on a home rule charter amendment petition, regardless of what's contained in SVRS, the city is simply obligated to accept that as gospel. And 
respectfully. So why, why shouldn't we do that when they're representing that that's where they live currently? I think a number of reasons, Your Honor. First, it's clear in uh, uh, Article 12, Section 5 of the Minnesota Constitution that only voters of the local governmental unit are allowed to sign petitions of this nature. And the legislature also provided for uh, the notion that the city clerk is obligated to review petitions to ensure that only eligible voters can vote in them. And there's additional refinement of those concepts contained in Minnesota statute section 410.12, which states that only registered voters are eligible to sign the petition, uh, as well as the fact that under Minnesota statute 200.039, only current voters are eligible to sign the petition. When you read all of that in harmony, respectfully, um, it is the obligation of the city clerk to ensure that only people who are affected by this petition, that is St. Paul residents and eligible voters, are permitted to sign it. And but in counsel, effect, if the, but counsel, Mr. Um, uh, your opponent, I'm sorry, Mr. O'Brien, says that you are conflating um, voter registration with residency and his point is when you decouple those when you say that residency is simply a function of where that person resides as shown by their signature saying where they reside from whether or not they are a registered voter the statute just it, it all makes sense it all falls together and there I mean he has a point I mean what's your response to, to the fact that that you have to decouple those two concepts, you know, that, that registered vote, being a registered voter is not the same as your residence. Well, I would concede that it's not necessarily the same thing, but I would return to what is the statutory obligation of the city clerk in this context? The city clerk's obligation is to ensure that only eligible people sign a petition of this nature because it doesn't make sense to, uh, to uh, one of your questions, counsel, uh, your honor's questions, that a Duluth resident should be allowed to sign a St. Paul petition of this nature. And so here we have a petition which becomes somewhat more complicated because it was assembled over the course of 18 months. And we had individuals who, yes, stated St. Paul residency addresses on that petition, uh, some of them 18 months before the petition was submitted. And so the city clerk is left in the situation of saying, okay, what is my obligation here? My obligation is to ensure that only people who's eligible people sign this petition. So how are you defining eligible? What's el what does eligible mean to you? Eligible means, uh, well, we, you know, I don't have to state my opinion because it's stated right in the constitution, which is that only um, voters of the residential or the government unit are eligible to sign the petition. You're right that might there be people for whom uh, their registered voter information in SVRS wasn't current because you know they signed the petition 18 months earlier at the time it's being evaluated, things may have changed. That is a possibility. But ultimately, it's the city clerk's obligation to ensure that only people who are eligible to sign the petition did sign it. Only let's assume, signatures let's assume um, I move from Hutchinson to St. Paul and uh, petition comes around that I want to sign and I sign my name on the petition and I note currently registered in Hutchinson but intend to vote but live in St. Paul and intend to vote in St. Paul parent close parent um, is that is that a valid signature I think it depends um, and the reason I say that I don't like to answer a question with such a vague answer but 
It's a vague question, but that's okay. Well, ultimately here, we look at the provisions provided for in Minnesota Statute 200.031 for determining when, what is a person's residence, and uh, council referenced that because it was quoted by the Court of Appeals, but it, I'll note a number of these provisions. Uh, one, an individual does not lose his residence, his or her, if the individual leaves home to live temporarily in another state or precinct. An individual does not, and that's subdivision two, an individual does not acquire a residence in any precinct of this state if the individual is living there only temporarily. That's subdivision three. Subdivision nine, moving to a new Yeah, but location. counsel, let's assume for Justice Anderson's question, he meets all 13 requirements. He really did move from Hutchinson into St. Paul, and he intends to vote there. <laughs> so then, now what does the answer depend on? Well, your, your question actually underscores our position, which is how is the city clerk meant to determine that? The petition here did not identify what does residency mean. It simply provided that the person would write down their place of residence. And in all of the signatures that were rejected, that place of residence could not be squared with information contained in SVRS. Now, I'm not saying SVRS is a perfect system, but what it is, and council alluded to this, is a system that's updated multiple times per day with driver registration information, uh, with information provided by the Department of Corrections. Respectfully, Council, I'm not, I don't think you're answering his question. And the question is, does he have to be registered in the city of St. Paul in order to sign the petition? He's not registered in the city of St. Paul. He's still registered in Hutchinson, but he's just moved into St. Paul. I think the answer is he probably doesn't have to, but I turn back to what is the burden here? He doesn't have to what? Well, he arguably doesn't need to be a registered voter in order to sign the petition. But when it comes to what is the city clerk's obligation here, the city clerk's obligation is to ensure that only eligible people sign this petition. So he can be a registered voter in Hutchinson and still sign a St. Paul petition? Well, from the standpoint of the city clerk, I would argue that's a signature that's appropriately rejected. And the reason is the city clerk has the obligation to ensure that only eligible voters sign the petition. And the city clerk doesn't know this person, doesn't know what his or her intentions are, merely knows that this is a person who, according to SVRS, is registered in Hutchinson, can't provide any information in SVRS to indicate that that person is a St. Paul resident or intends to vote in the city of St. Paul. And so under those circumstances, the city clerk appropriately looks at the information that's been assembled, including what uh, by, by state law is the official database of registered voters in the state, and rejects that signature. Well, they have to be registered voters. Council's point is they have to be registered voters. There's no dispute that's a requirement. There's also, I think, no dispute that they have to be members of the government unit, that is St. Paul residents. What council is saying is if they're registered voters and they say they reside in St. Paul, that should be good enough. I don't agree because, again, the city clerk has a gatekeeping obligation by law here. If Council's argument were accepted as true. It opens the door for people to simply go to Rosedale Mall with a petition and say, hey, I need you to please write a St. Paul address on this petition. And to your question, Should Justice, we make the assumption that people are going to act illegally like that? I'm not assuming that they well, will. I, I'm saying that it opens the door to that. I'm not in any manner implying that that happened here. But if you look at, in fact, the Montana case that's cited by Council in their brief, it's a case in which, in a similar set of circumstances, a petition was required. There it was a a uh, different type of petition, but it required residents of 34, but, I think, But there they proved counties. that there was fraud. There was. And but, in but fact, I guess my question is, should this court make an assumption that people are going to lie on the petition? 
I think what this court should do is acknowledge that the reason the city clerk has the gatekeeping obligation that he has is in order to ensure that that doesn't happen, to ensure that the people who sign petitions are in fact legally eligible so, to sign them. Because, and I'm, I want to just come back to this question about the gatekeeping function and eligibility because I, I read the statute and it says within 10 days after the petition is transmitted to the city council, the clerk shall determine two things whether each paper of the petition is properly attested, so by the person collecting the signatures attesting that this person signed it and we, I believe this is that person's address, and whether the petition is signed by a sufficient number of voters. So it's two things. Is there a correct attestation? And if you count them all up, does it meet the 5% requirement? Well, I, I What's, where, where, where do you get beyond that? What, what, what greater gatekeeping function is there? It, to me, respectfully, Your Honor, it, you can't read that provision in harmony with the, both the constitutional provision that provides that these petitions must be signed only by members of the local government unit and the statutory uh, requirements that they be well, signed. But only if they sign a resident, they, if they sign their name that says there's an address that lives in St. Paul, that seems to, to me at least to be some evidence that they meet the constitutional requirement. Well, arguably it's some evidence, but again, the petition hasn't told them, well, what does residence mean under statute 200.031? And ultimately, the city clerk has the obligation Was to that determine. statute in place when the Constitution was adopted? No, I'm sure it was not. So how would they have thought of that as part of the constitutional requirement? Well, it's... Um, <laughs> I would argue that they have to be read in harmony, Your Honor. You can't say, okay, you have to be a member of the local governmental unit and have a statute that says here's what residency means for purposes of voting and ignore that the two things must be tied together. Council, you keep using the word member of the local government unit. The statute doesn't say member. It voter. says the Constitution says voter. The statute says voter. I, I apologize if I'm misspeaking, Your Honor. So it doesn't say residence either. It says voter. That's correct. Okay. I would agree with that. Council, can, can I just take you to the record in this case? So there were a, a bunch of, of signatures where the district court, and I, I'm not going to remember the number, but there were hundreds of them where the district court essentially gave the benefit of the doubt to the, the signatory and, and counted it. What kinds of, of signatures were in that category um, where the district court gave the benefit of the doubt to the petitioners? So my memory, Your Honor, is there were 7,011 signatures required in total. The city rejected 1,127 of them, which meant that we were below the number needed by law. That number that you're alluding to, Your Honor, is that the court, because we were at summary judgment, essentially said, okay, if you can adduce any evidence that indicates that these people are St. Paul residents, we will add them to your number for purposes of defeating the motion, city's motion for summary judgment. So there, as so I understand So Justice it, Anderson's Hutchinson example, for example, would have been one of those where the district court would have given the benefit of the doubt to the signatory? My understanding is that those benefit of the doubt class were ones in which the petitioner, who was had the obviously had the burden of resisting the motion for summary judgment, introduced evidence like property records that showed that the person owned property in the city of St. Paul, other publicly recorded information. Um, the remaining, I think it was 147 of that 1127, the petitioner didn't introduce any evidence that the person resided in St. Paul other than the petition itself, and um, so the court rejected the motion for summary judgment. Or, or granted it, rather. Council, I'm confused now on what the city's position is. Is the city's position that 410.12, the phrase only registered voters are eligible to sign the petition, means 
Only registered voters registered in the city of St. Paul are eligible to sign the petition. The city's position, Your Honor, is that they must be registered voters as required by 410.12, and they must be voters of the local government unit as provided for the Constitution. In other words, registered in the city of St. Paul. They need to or be. Or is your position different? That's what I'm having trouble with. No, I think that would. Be, that is the way we were reading it, is, is harmonizing those two things. Is the city clerk's obligation is to ensure that a they're registered voters and b they're voters in the city of St. Paul. Okay, so if if someone moves from Hutchinson, establishes but does not change the registration from Hutch to St. Paul, even if Joe Mansky himself knows that that person is now residing in St. Paul. That's not enough because they haven't registered in St. Paul. Our position is that the information that's recorded by the Secretary of State, in this case it was SVRS, in every other city or the great majority of cities it would simply have been a printout from the Secretary of State's office of current registered voters. If that information does not correlate with information provided on the petition to substantiate that the person is a registered voter residing in St. Paul, then that signature is appropriately rejected. Registered in St. Paul. Correct. Okay. I, now I think I understand your position, but I, you seem to be uncomfortable with the position that I think you're taking. Respectfully, Your Honor, if I'm uncomfortable, uh, I, I don't feel uncomfortable with it at all. Um, okay. Unlike, you know, I haven't been involved with this case. Also, wait, I just want to make sure Brian because has. I'm not registered voter, but the registered voter, the registration has to say that they're registered in St. Paul. Yes. Okay, thank you. No, but that's different than what the district court did here. Well, what the district court did here was gave every possible benefit of the doubt to the petitioner. Our position is that the city clerk acted appropriately to the extent that the city clerk rejected signatures for which so there I, couldn't be a registered address. Just to clarify, then, your position would be Paul. the city clerk shouldn't have counted any of those um, benefit of the doubt voters either. The city clerk didn't. The court did. I, excuse me. The court shouldn't have counted any of that. I, I apologize. I, I, I wouldn't go as far as that, Your Honor, simply because we were here on a motion for summary judgment. The court, giving every benefit of the doubt to the petitioner, found that even when that benefit of the doubt was given, uh, there was not sufficient evidence to overcome the motion for summary judgment. What the had district the, court the, did was apply the summary judgment standard and correct. say that assuming that the evidence is in a light most favorable to the voter here, um, I'm going to credit those registrations. That's correct. And had we, you know, to so the can I just go ahead, sorry, finish. Go ahead. to the extent that we're talking about the petitioner's motion for summary judgment, had the court granted those and added those onto the total for purposes of the petitioner's motion, I would argue that was done improperly, because uh, you know the evidence wouldn't be construed in the light most favorable to us. So th this kind of comes down to the kind of the heart of the issue for me, and I think Justice Chudich started out the questioning with this, why are the signature, why is the address listed on the document not similarly raise a, a, at least a, a, be, a benefit of the doubt kind of to defeat under the summary judgment standard? Why is that not like at least creditable evidence that the person actually lives there? Well, I, I mean, it, it seems to me just strictly from a legal analysis that it's hearsay. Um, the, the petitioner here had the burden of raising admissible evidence which would tend to overcome the motion for summary judgment. And so he certainly could have gone out to each of these 1,127 rejected signatures and put in an affidavit or other supporting evidence, which was non-hearsay evidence, to indicate that uh, they resided within the city of St. Paul. 
And, you know, again, the tri to the satisfaction of the district court, the petitioner did do that as to some of the names, but not others. And so we're, we find ourselves here because ultimately the district court concluded that even when that benefit of the doubt was given, the petitioner was still 74 signatures short. So you, those, you would agree that... There we go. You would agree that um, if, um, again, using my hypothetical, and I'm the subject of this summary judgment motion, and I sign an affidavit that says... Um, you know, not only do I uh, reside in St. Paul, I park two cars in my garage and what, whatever other evidence I include in the affidavit, um, that would be sufficient to defeat the city's motion for summary judgment. You know, that's a question that I, the, the court was not faced with, but I would think probably. I mean, certainly the, once the motion for summary judgment was brought and adequately supported by the evidence, the burden shifted to the petitioners to adduce admissible evidence, which would tend to overcome it. And the petitioner arguably did that as to these 890 names, but as to the other 147 did not. Counsel, your answer to that question causes me confusion again. Your baseline position, as I understand it, is not only do you have to have a reside in St. Paul and have as many cars as you want, but you also have to be registered in St. Paul. Well, with respect to the review conducted by the city clerk, yes. I mean, again, the city clerk has Not this... just the review, but that's what the statute requires. That's what I understood your argument to be. And Again, I, I have to circle back to the fact that we find ourselves here on a petition brought under 204B.44, which requires that the petitioner establish an error, omission, or other wrongful act by the city. Here, the city clerk fulfilled what I believe is a statutory and necessary gatekeeping function in determining whether this petition was signed by an adequate number of people qualified to sign it. And he did that by comparing the names and signature addresses to information in the statewide voter registration system. I do not believe that rises to the level of an error, uh, omission, or wrongful act. Now, what information the district court might consider with respect to whether or not each of these signatories was properly rejected is a different question. Um, and, and with respect to that, the district court did allow admission of evidence where there was some information put into the record by the petitioner to substantiate the addresses provided were, on the To petition. defeat the city's motion for summary judgment, wouldn't there have to be evidence that the person actually was registered in the city of St. Paul? There would have to be evidence that the person was a registered voter and, in fact, resided in the city of St. Paul. Well, but that's why I'm confused, Counsel. You can be a registered voter somewhere and reside in the city of St. Paul, and the, the somewhere in St. Paul don't have to be the same. So what, what is, at the end of the day, your final position on whether someone registered in Hutchinson or Duluth can sign the petition in St. Paul, assuming the evidence is crystal clear? They are now a resident of St. Paul. I think when you harmonize the two statutes, when you harmonize the constitutional provision and the statutes, they're required to be registered voters in the city of St. Okay. Paul. Okay. Um, and again, I just want to circle back to this obligation that the city clerk has. It can't mean anything, in effect, if he's required to simply ignore publicly recorded information of voter registrations and ignore uh, whether or not there's a substantiating information that the person is a voter within the local government unit. If he simply has to take the word of a person who signs a petition, who provides a St. Paul residence address, it, it both directly undermines and kind of circumvents his statutory obligation to make sure that this petition is signed only by people who are qualified to sign it. And again, it also creates an opportunity in which petitioners, and I'm not implying anything about Mr. Butler, 
um, can simply tell people, look, write a St. Paul address on this, it's going to get on the ballot. And I don't think you can square that with the legislative intent behind both the Constitution and the statutes that govern these types of petitions. It doesn't make sense. Is that better? Yeah. The legislative intent was about making this an easy process. The idea, the whole point of this is to take, I think his words were, to take this, an idea, a resident has an idea, and to make it easy for uh, the citizens of St. Paul in a, in a home rule charter city to get that idea out there to, to the broader public and to have a vote on it. That that's, that's what's happening here. And, and, and that the, the, the structure of the statute and the Constitution um, foster that. I'd say, Your Honor, that it still has to be read in harmony with the provisions that require that only voters of the local government unit can sign a petition of this nature, because while it may very well be the legislative intent that these types of petitions are um, to be read broadly and we want to encourage citizen participation, it can't be the case that we want to allow people who are not eligible to sign, who are not voters within the city of St. Paul, to sign a petition of this nature and get things put on the ballot in the city of St. Paul. Now, uh, the city clerk here relied on the authoritative state voter registration database. I'm not sure what else the city clerk could reasonably have done. And, uh, and again, I just don't see how the city clerk's conduct could rise to the level of an error, omission, or wrongful act when he's simply reviewing this information to ensure that it's consistent with what's provided in the voter so can, registration database. Can I follow up? Because you have kept coming back, and I'm actually intrigued by this error, omission, or wrongful act. So is there a a different standard that we should be judging the city clerk by under that statute? You know, typically, because like it's a ministerial kind of duty, and so we afford, and, and so it's not a legal issue, but more discretion as to what, I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, and I haven't done the research on the case law underlying that, that statute. So here, because of the procedural posture in which we find ourselves, um, that is the standard that has that the legislature applies to this type of challenge. Now here the petitioner could have supplemented his petition, requested a stay of the trial court in order to do that. He didn't do that. He's only brought it based on this error, omission, or wrongful act. And so the reason I keep returning to that standard, Judge Thiessen, is that, uh, Justice Thiessen, is that it is the standard that governs the case and the petitioner has the burden of establishing it. And so is it possible that a city clerk could apply some other rubric or procedure to evaluate a petition? I suppose he could. He could go out to each of the homes of each of the people who signed it and say, I just want to confirm that you live here and you intend to vote here in the next election. Would that have been an error or omission? I don't think so. But the reason the standard is so essential is that we're not just talking about, well, what governs whether or not a person is a voter under the Constitution. We're, we're talking about whether or not the city clerk's conduct rose to the level of an error, omission, or wrongful act. And so I don't think we can analyze this question of whether uh, what was done was the perfect thing that could have been done had Solomon had an opportunity to do this review of the petition. We have to review it in the context of was it an error, omission, or wrongful act. And I don't see how looking at SVRS and comparing it and doing four separate reviews and reviewing 7,000 pages of screenshots of voter registration information from SVRS, uh, as Mr. Mansky did and as the trial court did, can represent an error, omission, or wrongful act. So basically, if the, the clerk kind of takes a reasonable approach to the question, that 
fits within the statutory framework, then there's no error or wrongful act that that the courts can come in and, and kind of second guess. In my view, if the city clerk does not act arbitrarily or capriciously, but rather conducts the review in a way which is fair and workmanlike and done consistently with the governing statutes, then I don't think an error, omission, or wrongful act can have occurred, and I don't believe one occurred under these facts. I my time's up. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Um, Mr. O'Brien, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Strike while the iron is hot. So the first thing I'm going to do is address your questions with regard to this idea of error omission. Uh, the city has, uh, uh, throughout this proceeding, taken the position that we didn't commit an error. How could we have committed an error if we relied upon the statewide voter registration system? And the statewide voter registration system said that these people are not registered in St. Paul as indicated on the petition. Those last words are the catchphrase that populated most of the signatures that were eliminated. Not registered to vote in St. Paul as indicated on petition. The idea that, let's talk about the error. The error is that they misapplied the law from the inception. They took it upon themselves to say, nope, our duty is to verify that you are in fact registered in St. Paul. That was the standard that they utilized. If there was any discrepancy, if we didn't achieve a match on the data points, the signature as a general proposition was eliminated. However, and this goes back to your question about discretion, so that sounds like a hard line rule. No, in fact, if you review the deposition testimony in this matter, there was an incredible amount of discretion afforded each and every one of the, um, uh, each and every one of the election officials in reviewing this process. I'll give you an example. If you, in your personal knowledge, understood that Peggy could be a nickname for Elizabeth, and the petition said Peggy Smith, that signature, assuming it satisfied with regard to address and birth year, that signature might or might not slip through depending on the reviewer who happened to be uh, taking a look at your line because they might have found an Elizabeth Smith at that precise address with that precise birth year, but depending on that subjective reviewer, they might have said, no, I'm sorry, I don't know that Peggy is the same person as Elizabeth, and therefore, because I can't verify that, I'm going to eliminate them. So really, there was a very hard line taken with regard to certain signatures, and then there was a soft line. So is it arbitrary? It starts to get there when you start to consider individualized signatures, but that's the reviewing process. Fundamentally, what we're here about today is what was the error? You misapplied the law. You were to take the statute on its face, which if you read it, it simply says, put down your current residence. And you, clerk, you have two obligations, which were highlighted uh, during respondents' argument here. Number one, um, uh, make sure that it's, well, the, the key one is make sure it's signed by a sufficient number of voters. 
What kind of voters? Registered voters. We know that because that's what's referenced further or initially in the statute itself. That is their duty. It doesn't say, make sure that they actually live there. And the use of the word harmonizing was something that populates a lot of the conversation in, in uh, the respondent's case. We have to harmonize these things. We have to make sure you can't read these things in, in isolation. No, in fact, you have to read them in isolation. They are isolated. You must be a registered voter and you must be a resident of the local government unit, a voter of the local government unit, specifically a registered voter of the local government unit. How do you establish residency? Because you cannot look at the statewide voter registration system as determinative of residency. Council, can, can I just ask you, does it make sense that city officials would ignore the official record of voter registration? Because it seems to me that's effectively what you're arguing. You're saying the only thing that matters is what's on the petition. And the petition lists an address that's in the city of St. Paul. That's game, set, and match. That's it. So effectively, that means then that the information in the statewide official record of registration is not relevant. Does that make sense? Uh, it, it makes sense, but I disagree with um, your characterization of what we are arguing. Uh, what we are arguing is, look, with regard, and, 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 and I want to make sure, we are not arguing that the statewide voter registration system has now been obviated for any purposes, nor as counsel, opposing counsel was saying, well, what's the clerk do? The, the clerk can't simply ignore what's in the statewide voter registration system. No. The clerk isn't to ignore the statewide voter registration or the information that's contained therein. What the statewide voter registration system is to be used for and continues to be viable as a tool for doing is to determine that, in fact, there is an individual who is registered. It's an individual identifier. So you look at the yes or no, but you don't look at where? Correct. And when the city, um, the city, as I understand it, gave, indicated to you or your clients that they would have 10 days to submit amended information, and you, as I understand it, didn't take advantage of that. Does, is that relevant at all to our um, examination of the issues here? Well, um, we petitioned the court to have um, that issue considered um, certainly, we raised that at the Minnesota Court of Appeals as far as the procedural due process that was afforded Mr. Butler. I'll say this. Uh, when Mr. Butler was initially notified of the notice of insufficiency and received that, he had 10 days from that date to supplement. And supplementation means go out and get more signatures and submit more signatures. At that point in time, Mr. Butler didn't know with any specificity, why all of a sudden seven, nearly 1,700 signatures had been eliminated. So he followed up with the Ramsey County Elections Office in an attempt to figure out what, what did I do wrong, because I sure don't want to repeat the errors if I'm going to have to go and supplement. But the burden, but, but the simple fact of the matter was that he was short, by his estimation, about 1,700 signatures. 
And that was a burden given his limited ability to go out and he just didn't think he could go out and get 1,700 signatures or whatever that deficit was. Uh, I guess it was, it had to be 1,100 or so. Uh, he couldn't marshal that within 10 days. So when we started to look through the actual, uh, the actual contents of the petition and find out what certain signatures had you know, certain signatures had been eliminated, it became apparent to us that, you know, this was an error. So they were making errors throughout, and it occurred to us that they don't seem to be applying the law as, as certainly Mr. Butler and I were reading. Counsel, let's say we read the law differently than you do and determine that only the phrase only registered voters in the statute means only registered voters in St. Paul. Does that mean your client loses? Are there, or are there still enough signatures of voters registered in St. Paul to meet the legal threshold? Well, uh, boy, the, the, the math and the numbers that fly around in this case, um, it sounds more like a, kind of a football call um, when, when you actually start running through them. 1,127, 980, 690, 74. Yeah, but uh, I mean, do you still throw your red flag um, nice. <laughs> or, or do you do you concede that there's just not enough there if that's the rule of law that we adopt? I suspect that if that is the rule of law, uh, that it's going to fail, okay. because Mr. Butler mathematically did not have. I mean, he was 74 short. Now, keep in mind that that 74 short was tied to the 147 individuals that the district court found, and, and, and this is a fair characterization, the only evidence in the record was that although these individuals, these 147 individual signatures provided an extant St. Paul address, and, and critically, they were found as registered voters in the system, their registration information showed them to be outside. What do you make on those exact voters of the hearsay argument? Because you introduced other evidence, public records, you know. Um, yeah. So what do you make of the hearsay argument in terms of the summary judgment motion? Yeah, I, I think what, what essentially is being set up here is for petitioners in all regards to fail, no matter what. I mean, it, the, the game seems rigged, but here's my point. Number one, and, and this goes back to uh, kind of that second argument that we raised with regard to uh, petitions enjoin, should enjoy, a, uh, 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 basically a presumption of validity and that when you offer that petition and it conforms with all the legal requisites from the certification standpoint of the petitioner, which this one did, it ought to enjoy a presumption of uh, validity. And, and that shifts the burden then to the city to offer perhaps the statewide voter registration system as, oh wait, you don't actually live at that location. And then we can have a trial. Thank then you. we can have a trial on that. Thank, Thank you, you, counsel. very much. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion.